back to another episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, a DC Comics completionist podcast, the only podcast around that's going issue by issue through the DC Comics universe, starting from Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hopefully it sounds okay. I still think it's it's echoey as all get out, but I think that Sometimes you just have to go with it. Sometimes things aren't going to work out as you want. I, I would love to, you know, cover all these walls in, in foam and and have a completely pure sound environment. But unfortunately, I am but uh, a guy trying to make it in this economy, so I can't spend all my money on sonic dampeners. So I, I did my best. I got some. Obviously, not enough but uh hopefully enough to make it at least not murder on your ears uh to listen to so so yeah so now now we're now we're in business uh now i know that i promised at the beginning of the year but now we should be good there shouldn't be anything keeping us from recording on a regular basis and releasing on a regular basis so Let's get into today's episode. Today's episode, we'll be covering World's Finest Comic, number 314, little Batman-Superman action in that. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, number two. That's right, we've made it one month. It only took us 10 episodes, but we made it one month in 1985. Uh, Wonderful. (laughs) So we'll continue the story in uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, find out what's going on there. Probably a, a bunch of devastated multiverse worlds uh and then finally we have dc comics presents number 81 which is uh, a little ambush bug and superman action they're going up against cobra with a k uh so i don't believe that that is spelled the same way as cobra from gi joe uh so that's that'll be exciting but as always let's talk about the real world history that was happening when these issues were on the shelves or getting put on shelves uh one way or the other uh, so January 28th, the charity single record We Are the World is recorded by USA for Africa. This is the first of the We Are the World special recordings with numerous artists, Michael Jackson uh, being the main one, and then uh, numerous other well-known musicians of the time recording the song We Are the World and uh, donating the proceeds to Africa. Uh, I didn't look into what that means, and is it the entire country? continent of africa and how do you divide that up do you divide it by country because that feels like the proceeds probably won't go that far but uh but that's the first one i from my time as a teenager i remember we are the world recorded for haiti uh, after the earthquake uh, that ravaged haiti uh, back in the 2010s i believe i'm not sure which year specifically but that's when it was i believe either that or 2008 i'm not sure 2007? I don't know. I didn't look it up because we're not in 2007. Uh, January 29th, Margaret Thatcher becomes the first post-war prime minister to be publicly refused an honorary degree by Oxford University. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, a very divisive character in uh, history, especially British history, as a prime minister, I believe the first female prime minister. Uh, Not the last, obviously. Uh, but uh, certainly one of the most divisive male or female uh, prime ministers uh, to ever happen for for England. Uh, January 30th, the Canadian federal government relaxed 
its laws requiring businesses to use the metric system. Obviously, Canada was a part of the Commonwealth. I, I don't believe at this time it still was, but um, it was part of the British Commonwealth, so it, it, a lot of its laws and stuff are based on British laws. Uh, but it, it no longer being part of the Commonwealth and being so close to America, sharing its largest border, I believe, with America, uh, it it decided to relax its sort of strict requirements for the metric system to allow the imperial system to also be used, which is what we use here in America. Uh, and finally, February 4th, the border between Gibraltar and Spain reopens for the first time since Francisco, Francisco Franco closed it in 1969. So that's about 16 years uh, before this. So, uh, And if you don't know Gibraltar, it's a little tiny island, uh, the Rock of Gibraltar. Uh, it is in the Mediterranean. Uh, I believe it is, it is a part... Uh, it is in the middle of the narrowest portion of the Mediterranean, and it is sort of the border between the Mediterranean and the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the Greeks, I believe, called it the uh, the Gates of Hercules, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mistaken. I'm not an expert on that. But uh, it, is, it is very much like a harbinger of, like, here, here's the Atlantic Ocean. And it's not very far from Spain, uh, very, very few miles away uh, off coast. So to have the border closed between it is a pretty big deal. Uh, and that is all of the little tidbits and factoids uh, of what was going on in 1985 around January 24th to January 7th, uh, which is when all of these issues come out. So let's get into our first issue, which is, as I said, World's Finest Comics number 314, released January 24th, 1985, with a cover date of April 1985. There's kind of a debut in this one, although it's a I believe one-off character that doesn't make a, a return uh, ever, uh, and if so, it's it's in a ways in the future. Uh, the execution, executrix, executrix, ex- she, it's exec like executioner, but then dominatrix, and you sort of portmanteau them together. It depending on how you pronounce it, it either sounds like what it means, like an executioner, female version of an executioner, or a uh, an executive assistant robot from the future, like something they'd have on the jet, the Jetsons, Executrix. You know, it copies, it collates, it it calls and lies to your wife about a long business meeting when in reality you're hitting the the golf course with your buddies or having an illicit affair. So um, she's an assassin. Uh, let's just straightforward. She's an assassin come to kill uh, some guys uh, and and. She happens to bump into Superman and Batman, so she'll be the antagonist for this issue. On the production side, we, uh, this issue was written by Joe Cavallari, penciled by Stan Walk, Vock, W-O-C-H, uh, inked by Alfred P. Alcala, lettered by Duncan Andrews, and colored by Nancy Houlihan. So let's get into it. As always, let's start with the cover. Uh, it it shows the executrix, nope, executrix, because, yeah, executrix, executioner, executrix. Okay. Uh, she is holding the capes of Superman and Batman as if she has defeated them, which, laughable, she's just a person. Like, she has no powers or anything. Uh, so the fact that she could beat Superman uh, without Kryptonite and uh, Batman, uh, pretty, pretty low, pretty low. 
Uh, she's wearing a red costume, although in the in the story itself they say it's black. But this one has a lot of red on it to be black, so I'm thinking it's red. Uh, she also has red hair. It's up in a bun uh, because she's busy. She's got she doesn't need hair on her face because she is working. So she's got it up in a bun. Uh, a classic a classic technique for keeping hair out of your face. I wouldn't know because I don't have any. But women and men with long hair would know that a bun is very useful. Uh, so let's let's get to the story itself, shall we? Uh, we'll stop talking about uh, buns and their usefulness. We open the story, the issue, on two men who we've never met before, uh, who don't really have names and aren't really important uh, after the story. They are meeting on the top of the G- GBS uh, building, uh, the, the news company that Clark Kent works for as an on-screen reporter. Um, a man in a yellow suit is talking to uh, presumably a reporter. I mean, I know he's a reporter, but just from the look at him, you think, oh, this dude works for a newspaper. He's wearing what appear to be jeans. Uh, he's wearing a white button-down shirt with the sleeves rolled up to the mid-forearm. He's wearing a, it looks purple, like a purple vest and a blue tie. And it, it just screams, I'm a reporter. I work at a newspaper. And I don't know why. It just, that's what it, that's the vibe it gives off. Um, and the man in the yellow suit is very nervous um, because he's the one who asked for this uh, open-air conference on top of this building uh, because he is worried that someone is after him for the stuff that he knows. Um, so he is telling the reporter the stuff that he knows in the presumed privacy of this rooftop in the middle of the night. Uh, so sometime later, we see the reporter walking through an empty parking lot to what appears to be an 80s-era Corvette, which is a very, very fancy car for a reporter to be buying, so he must come from money. Uh, But he is thinking about the guy that he was talking to. Uh, He insisted that they leave separately and uh, that they don't use the elevator uh, for fear that whoever is following this guy or whoever he thinks is following him will stop the elevator and kill them. So they took the stairs. So he had to walk down a bunch of flight of stairs. It's a tall building, and he's finally getting back to his car. And he's adjusting the mirror like a proper driver. You get into the car. You check your mirrors first. And in it, he sees a woman uh, standing behind his car. And he looks out his window and says, Are you lost? And if you need a ride, you might uh, as well get in. Uh, you won't find a cab this hour of the... And he's suddenly cut off by machine gun fire from this woman who's holding a machine gun and shooting it at him in his car and she uh, pulls out his notebook and says that's one story that won't see the light of day too bad i didn't get that gutter rat page who is the man in the yellow suit two that would have completed the job i could collect and go home because she's a hired gun she's a hired assassin so um, she knows the story that Paige has told this reporter, and she has gotten the reporter with a bunch of bullets, and we see the title of this issue, and it's called Gotham Bridge is Falling Down. Um, because this, this story has to do with uh, steel, and uh, a poorly made steel, and its involvement with construction. So we cut to the next morning, and we see Clark Kent going to a news event, a press conference, if you will, outside of the Gotham, the new Gotham Bridge. 
And he is meeting up with his new camera person uh, who is seeing why Clark is so difficult to work with because he's always late, because he's always out doing Superman stuff. Uh, And I would like to comment on the art here uh, at this um, point in time. The art is weird in this one. I don't really see Clark Kent in these images of Clark Kent. He doesn't really look like Clark Kent. And when he becomes Superman, he doesn't really look like Superman. In the face, mostly. The body is, of course, it just looks like a body. But the face really doesn't look uh, like Clark Kent at all. Uh, So uh, that's that's just really interesting to me. Uh, We then cut to... Uh, Wayne Manor, and Bruce is watching this press conference about this opening of this bridge on television. And uh, his, I presume, girlfriend, lover, uh, casual hookup, um, although he does take her out to a party, uh, so I would assume that they're in some sort of relationship. Uh, I don't think he says her name at this point, so... Um, we're just gonna. She's a she's a redhead. Her, she's got very long hair, so we're just gonna call her redhead. We're gonna call her red. And I know redheads out there hate that, but I'm gonna call her red. She says honestly, Bruce, a bridge opening. Some women lose their men to ball games, but this is about as exciting as watching bread mold. Which, if you speed up the process, bread mold, like actually happening, is very interesting to watch. So. And Bruce says, oh, it only seems dull. It's, it's a lot of hard work that went into the process. And, and Wayne Design Group spent like six months engineering this, this support system for this bridge. So it's a part of his business portfolio is, is this bridge. And so he's excited to watch this press conference. And Red is like, well, big deal. Who wants to go to Ferris County, which is where this bridge goes to? You sound like a kid with a new Erector set, which if you've ever had an Erector set, they're very cool. You can build all sorts of stuff with that stuff. Uh, we then cut to the uh, person who is, you know, giving the speech about opening the Gotham Bridge, and he cuts the ribbon when suddenly behind him a plane starts falling out of the sky, and it looks like it's going to crash. Lots of black smoke is coming out of it, and of course, uh, Clark is like, "I gotta go. Um, I'll be right back." And his camera person's like, "What were you going?" And he's like, "I gotta get back to the van to get you more tape because it's 1985, so they record on tape." When in reality, of course, we know that Clark Kent is going to take off his suit and reveal his Superman costume and fly up there. As he's flying up there, the wing of this plane just busts clean off. It's a very clean break. Just busts right off. So he is now, instead of doing a slow, like a crashing descent, which you can sometimes land, uh, at least uh, survivably land, this is not going to end well. So Superman grabs the wing and... uh, Uh, reattaches it with his heat vision, and then sort of flies the plane to a safe landing. We then cut to that night at Gotham Tower, where Bruce has taken his, I'll just call her his girlfriend, uh, to a party celebrating the opening of the bridge. And so they're mingling, and as Bruce is walking, or they're not mingling, they're about to go mingle, when Paige the man in the yellow suit, runs up to the doorman and says, Mr. Bruce Wayne, Mr. Wayne, Bruce. And the doorman tries to stop him. But Bruce is like, it's fine. I know this this guy, uh, Ron Page, right? You are, uh, are you still working at Metro Steel? Which I would assume is a Metropolis Steel Company because I can put two and two together. 
And Paige says, no, I'm not. Uh, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, we then cut to Clark and his camera person. And she is saying uh, that, you know, that plane crash could have been really good news, but you had to run out like that. And she's of course, and Clark's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, but covering a society party should be a lot tamer than apparently a bridge opening. So he shouldn't have to run off, he hopes. When suddenly there's a loud sound coming from the building. And they do this a lot in movies. Like when the, the frame of a building is coming under like stress, there's like that, you know, noise of like, I can't make it well with my mouth. I'm not the guy from Police Academy. But there, you, you know the sound. Like in, uh, I, I'm blanking on any other movie where it happens, but like in uh, Poseidon, which is the movie about that ship that gets flipped over upside down by a rogue wave. Like when the water pressure, or like in movies where there's submarines and the pressure is too much, like there's that sound of the pressure kind of getting to the frame. And that sound happens in the ballroom of the Gotham Tower. And what happens is the glass sort of atrium that is going, or skylight that is going over the top of this ballroom, you would presume is what it is, at the top of the tower, uh, the steel frame of it just snaps, uh, just snaps under its own weight. And glass and steel uh, showers down upon the partygoers in their fancy attire. And uh, Clark pretends like he's too scared. Um, he doesn't want to get hit by glass and steel, so he runs into the kitchen and, you know, becomes Superman, as as he does, and uh, flies back out really fast and freezes, I guess the, this is not very straightforward how he does this, because there's no water. Um, he freezes the air, I guess, uh, around the glass panels and the steel supports. Uh, so that he can uh, gather them up and repair the roof with his heat vision. Uh, so uh, we then cut to Ron Page, who in all the commotion got separated from Bruce Wayne. Uh, and behind him we see Executrix holding a gun, aiming at him, ready to shoot him. Uh, we then cut to Bruce and his girlfriend, who hear it. Oh, it's Lil- Lilan. Well, that's, I always thought, I thought it was Lillian. Which makes more sense, but it's L I L A N N E, Lil Ann, Lil Ann. <laughs> maybe it's maybe she's a rapper and she's Lil Ann, which I think would be funny, but I don't think I don't think it's Lil Ann, Lil Ann. It doesn't even roll off the tongue well. You can't even like pronounce it well, Lil Ann. Uh, so um, Bruce runs off and he says that he's going to go alert somebody to to help, and then he jumps into. The lim- a limousine that's waiting, it's presumably his own because the person in the front says, I thought you'd want me to bring the limousine around at the first sign of trouble, which presumably that's Alfred. But there's a weird sort of error in this panel. So it's presumed, we are presuming, and, and well, yeah, we, the reader, are presuming that it's Bruce jumping in here so he can change into his Batman costume. But what we see is Superman sitting in the back seat. And he says, good man, Alfred, you. And then he's cut off and he says, one second, that's Ron Page under attack. I I just left him. Which would imply that this is Bruce. But 
what we see Bruce wearing is we see the arm. We see his arm, which is the, the light blue of Superman's costume. And then we see a cape on his back, which is red, and has the Superman symbol on the back like Superman's. So it's a really weird error that I... It's shocking that no one caught, like, the even the person drawing it. It's like, well, that doesn't really make sense that Superman would be in the back of this limo. So it's really weird. I'll be posting the panel for, for on the Instagram so that you can see it. It's just really weird, and it's not it's not mentioned. Because then the next panel, on the next page, we see Batman swinging into action. He swings towards Executrix. Nope, that's the, that's the robot. Executrix. It's so hard to say. Uh, and he kicks the gun out of her hand into the uh, fountain, uh, presumably on the ground floor of the Gotham Tower. But before he can swing away, Executrix grabs his uh, arm or his leg or something and sort of judo flips him into the fountain and then pulls out an electric rod, like electric baton, uh, to... That's, you know, like, it's very electrified. It's not just like a little taser. It's like a very, very electrified. And she throws it into the fountain. But just in time, Batman jumps out, not being electrified and possibly dead. It's like throwing a toaster into the bathtub with you. Uh, Soon, which is, I guess, a a few minutes later, um, we see Ron Page and Lillian going into the room of a hotel room not to have an illicit fair. Don't worry. There's no affair happening um but they're going into a suite that bruce maintains here at the gotham tower just in case he'll need it and she tells ron page that he'll be safe in here so that he can tell her and bruce what it's all about why he's being attacked by this assassin and as they open the door batman is inside and he says yeah tell me too i'm very interested in what this man has to say and of course it's like batman is that really you batman's like yeah of course it is start from the beginning So Ron Page then lays out the story that he, we're assuming, told the reporter basically all this information as well. And that's what got the reporter killed. Um, This this kind of reminds me of, I just watched this movie, The Parallax View from 1978? 19? I don't know. I can't remember when it came out, but it's with Warren Beatty. It's basically about this conspiracy, this secret company that is like a conspiracy of sleeper agents and killing presidential candidates and it's very it's very interesting and it kind of reminds me of this because this warren Beatty knows something's up and so he's being he's being chased sort of but back to the comic uh ron page says that oh mr wayne knows me you know i used to work at metro steel the job had a lot of responsibility a lot of decisions uh that i had to make and uh one afternoon i came back from uh, an executive lunch uh, to find that uh, that responsibility had been taken from him. Decisions that he'd made were being unmade. Uh, his superiors decided to go with a new, cheaper process in making steel, which will save the company millions. And, of course, capitalistic society dictates that we must always increase profits, despite the consequences. So Ron Page says that the process, although it's cheaper, it also turns the steel brittle, making it basically useless and uh causing it to shatter after a very short time after it is fabricated. So Ron is uh, anguished about this, and it's hard to fight this kind of decision uh, because what's good for Metro is good for the economy because it employs a lot of people. It's one of those things with 
banks and the auto industry. They are too big to fail because if they fail, there will be a economic crisis because so many people will be out of work that unemployment will go through the roof and and that'll be bad. Uh, So that's why companies like that get bailouts. So Ron Page says they started using the steel in planes, trains, uh, and basically everything. Uh, but once the steel started to fail, they blamed the design of the thing it was being put into or the, the welding. Uh, but they knew it was their fault and they paid a lot to keep it quiet, which is standard hush money. Uh, so Ron Page uh, talks a little bit about uh, real achievements uh, are something that lasts, building something that lasts, endurance. Um, that's That's what counted or that's what counts you know the pyramids the eiffel tower they're built to endure uh so ron is you know ron was conflicted about this and so he said that he knew that bruce wayne would understand he's the only man that ron page would trust and so he wants to work for bruce wayne presumably at wayne design uh, or wayne there's probably wayne manufacturing there's no way he's not involved in manufacturing in some way He's involved with anything. He has so much money. Uh, So he wants to work there, even though it competes with Metro Steel, but Metro Steel would never let him, knowing what he knows. So they're trying to kill him before he can go to to anyone. And Ron Page says, well, when the story breaks in tomorrow's Daily Planet, everyone will know then. Um, uh, But until then, I'll need protection. And you know, Lilan suggests he stays here in the suite, and he says, "No, if I stay in one place, I'm a sitting duck. I gotta keep moving." And uh, Lilan says, "I could take you to Wayne Manor, but it's a question of how." With Bruce suddenly gone, I don't think she knows who Batman is, so that's good, because uh, I've never heard of her before. So I feel like if it's a girlfriend of Bruce's that knows he's Batman, I feel like we would have heard about her more. Uh, so uh, she suggests she suggests a car, a private car. Uh, presumably Bruce's limousine or a police escort. And Paige says, no, those seem like really tight spaces. Someone could easily just, you know, kill him, you know, in such a small space. And then Lilan suggests taking the Metrac, which is a play on Amtrak, but it's the Metropolis, Am- a Metropolis-based Amtrak equivalent, I guess. So her and Ron Page are going to go do that, going to go get a ticket for the train and head off to Wayne Tower, which I guess the train station is close to. So next, the next morning, Clark Kent comes into the office uh, early, uh, as he does, because Superman, I don't really think, needs to sleep, uh, but I could be wrong. And he's like, oh, what are you guys doing here so early? And uh, Lois, I think it's Lois, I don't, is it implied it's Lois? I, uh, I know that the man standing there is Jimmy, so I'm just going to assume that that's Lois standing next to Jimmy. Um, and, and Lois says, uh, you didn't get the call? And they say they found Casey Harrow, one of the planet's business day reporters, shot in his own car downstairs in the parking lot. Uh, there's going to be a memorial service in GBS Studio C. And Clark is shocked. And this is one of the panels where it doesn't really, to me, look like Clark Kent. Uh, so... Uh, the art style in this issue is weird. Uh, Jimmy asks if Clark is coming, and he says he'll uh, in a little while. And, and meanwhile, he's thinking about the murder, if it had anything to do with one of Harrow's recent assignments. 
Clark has the idea that if if there is going to be a lead, it's going to be somewhere in Harrow's terminal, which is a precursor sort of thing to a computer, or maybe just a really, really early computer, because I don't typically think they're called terminals anymore. Well, I guess maybe they are. But he's, you know, punching, he's, oh, it's, it's password protected. But Superman's like, if I just punch in every possible combination at super speed, I can discover his passcode uh, and free the info. So there must not be a lockout uh, if you try too many times and fail, it locks your computer, uh, like people used to do as pranks with people's iPods back in the day. They would just continually put in the wrong code uh, until it was a, like a crazy amount of time that it would be locked. Uh, so he gets in, uh, and he, he sees that Harold was working on a story about a defective steel alloy Uh and so Clark puts two and two together because Harrow has a bulleted list underneath of what this bad steel was used in. Uh, and he says, Bright Comet Plane, Gotham Tower Skylight Roof, Metrac Train Liner. And then it says Ferris County Kazons, C-A-I-S-S-O-N-S, which has a double meaning. It's both a military uh, like armament storage or something along those lines, but it's also the things that they, they sink into rivers uh, to build bridges on top of. I had to look up what a Kazon was. I did not know what it was. And uh, Clark is thinking, hmm, a pattern. If it's running true to form, it wouldn't hurt to check on the Met track. Now, I just want to stop for a second because it wasn't shown that Harrow went back to his office after talking with Ron Page. And maybe he did, and it just wasn't mentioned. Uh, because I just, I thought when reading this that he went from the roof down to his car and then and then was going to drive home, but he was obviously murdered. So I guess he must have left the roof, uh, walked down the stairs to the floor that his business, his office is on, went into his terminal, and typed in this information. Because otherwise, how would this information be on this computer? Uh, so we just, I guess we just have to assume that he came down and typed it in there. Because otherwise, it's just a real plot hole about how it got there. Uh, we then cut to the Metrac Gotham station, where Lilan and Paige are talking with Batman, and Lilan told, tells him that they'll be on the second car from the front. And she asks where Batman will be, and he says, I'll be around. And he's in, like, the shadows, and all you see is his hand reaching out. And it's very good. It's a very good image. He's like, I'll be around. And uh, Ron and Lilan get on the train, and it says Met Track Liner for Ferris County and points north all aboard. And (laughs) Ron is kind of griping about, oh, he'll be around, and I'll be dead. And Lilan says, don't talk that way. I don't know much about the Batman, but I do know this. He speaks with authority. He's one of the few men I've met in this life who knows what he's talking about. And when he does talk, listen. So, uh, and Ron says, I am listening. All I hear are footsteps behind me because I'm paranoid. And Lilan says, stop being paranoid. Uh, When they go through the door, we see a woman sitting in one of the seats that they walked past. And it is the executrix. I'm going to say that slowly. And she's thinking to herself, I was unable to bring my more outre, O-U-T-R apostrophe E, weaponry aboard this train, obviously, because it's very ostentatious. It's a big gun. 
but by the time the train reaches its final destination, and she clicks open a switchblade, that will little matter. I'll have achieved the same result with this. A knife, which is used to kill people or cut things. Uh, we then see Ron and Lilanne sitting in a row with a mother and her young son. And Batman is right outside the window looking in like a little creep. And he's thinking, I could put uh, Paige in a private car against his wishes. It would keep him alive to testify against his employers. For me, that is not enough. It is merely treating a symptom. And uh, Lilanne is you know, telling Ron that they could have taken the limo. Alfred can be trusted. Uh, when suddenly the little boy, whose name is Jamie, points out the window and says, Batman, Batman. And his mom's like, yeah, yeah, Jamie, uh, quiet. Here's your comic book. Because I guess, do Batman comics exist in this universe? That's crazy. Batman's a real person. That's weird. Uh, the train is now coming up on Gotham Bridge. When suddenly the, the conductor and the engineer see that another train is on the same track and coming right for them. It should have switched over to the other track. Uh, so that they wouldn't hit each other, obviously. That's because that's how trains work. It'd be bad if there was only one line, and you'd have to be like, oh, got to back up, because there's a train coming. So they see up ahead that the switch is broken. It's sort of, like, snapped in half. Uh, I wonder if that was made with Metro Steel Steel. Who knows? Uh, so they're panicking, like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? we got to think of something. The uh, conductor is, gotta, he's like, i got to get out of here. I, I, I can't be here when this happens. When suddenly the train comes to an abrupt halt, and they see a hand outside the window, and it's the hand of Superman. He's stopping the train. He says, I would have been arrived sooner, but I had to stop the other train, of course. And they're like, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, we cut to Ron and Lilan, and the car that they're in is really disheveled, obviously, because the train's coming to a abrupt stop. And uh, Ron is going to be sick. Lilan gives him some Dramamine for motion sickness. We then cut to Superman flying above. And he says, I shudder to think what would have happened if those trains would have collided on the Gotham Bridge. And he's like, wait, the bridge. When I looked at Harrow's file on Metro Steel, I just assumed Ferris County Kazons meant something military. But it really means that their defective steel has been used in something very different and vital, the Kazons of the Gotham Bridge. We cut to uh, Ron Page. He's in the bathroom drinking a cup of water with these pills because this is the 1980s, and they provided things like cups of water in the bathroom, I guess. Um, and he's about to leave. Or, uh, sorry, I should say there's a, a rapid knock on the door. Someone really has got to use the bathroom. And he's like, just give me a second. Uh, but who was is outside that door? The executrix. And she gasses him in the face, knocking him out. And she drags him out of the bathroom, and the conductor asks, is, is something wrong? And she says, oh, he's not feeling well. I'm going to take him out for some air before the train starts moving again. We then cut to Superman, who has dived into, what is the river in Gotham called? Gotham River? I don't know. He's, he's jumped into the river where the bridge is going over. And he is swum down to the bottom, and he sees the Kazon that the bridge is built on, and he says the new solid steel Kazon forms the foundation for one of the bridge's towers. From the looks of things, it's going to shatter, just like the Gotham's, Gotham Tower's skylight. 
And you can see it's got tons of huge cracks in it. Um, cracks that would like would only occur after decades, maybe hundreds of years of the ridge uh, being there, not you know mere days, hours after it's completed. Uh, we cut back to the train, and Batman is running through the train, uh, and he's asking about Page. He saw him get up. Where'd he go? And the conductor says, oh, Mr. Page, uh, a woman dressed in black escorted him off the train. He said he was sick. Uh, and Batman says, a strange woman in black who just happens to know Paige's name, and you let him go off alone. And he's pointing at Lilan. And uh, there's a funny little moment where uh, the mom of Jamie uh, says, Batman? I, I mean, Batman? Because Jamie's a little boy. Or I, I don't know why I said a little boy. He's a little kid. And so he couldn't say Batman. So he said Batman. So his mom says Batman. So Batman rushes off and... Jamie yells after him, where Robin, Batman? Where is Robin? What's he doing? Oh, wait, we know what he's doing. He's hanging out with... Wait, no, we don't know where Robin is. Where is Robin? Because he's Jason Todd. Where's Jason Todd? He's not dead yet. Spoiler alert. He's not dead yet. Uh, We then cut to the Executrix and Ron Page, and she's thinking, consider a Superman to clear the bridge of all train and auto traffic. Now there will be no witnesses when I finish him off and pitch him into the Gotham River. It is the Gotham River. That's what it's called. It's called the Gotham River. Really, really creative. That'd be like, called, that'd be like if the East River was actually called the New York River. New York City River. Come on. Come on, writers. Call it something different. Uh, Batman, at this point in time, is running up behind the executrix, executrix, but she hears him, and she turns around, she's got her, na- her knife to Ron Page's neck, and she says, I can, I can, tra- I can, wow, wow, sorry, I contracted to make sure this man dies, Batman, and if you come near me, it'll only happen that much faster. I mean, why not just do it? Why, 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 why sort of drag him out to the middle of this bridge? Uh, to to pitch him into the river, you don't have to go directly in the middle. Slit his throat and then just chuck him over. The t- like the current will deal with him. You're a bad assassin. Uh, so Batman's thinking, there's nothing I can do this way. So he sort of he I guess shoots his grappling hook and swings away. She's like, that's it, Batman. Turn tail with your cape between your legs, which which I, would be uncomfortable and not very useful for a cape. Although. I don't really know what capes are, what use capes have, uh, other than to make Batman look very uh, ominous and for Superman to make it look like he's flying. But Batman wasn't swinging away afraid. He was swinging around in a circle to get the jump on the Executrix, and he does. He jumps down, and he's going to throw a batarang at her. And he says, your employers knew this bridge would come, would someday claim many lives. I won't let that death toll start with him. And she's, of course, shocked, like, Where, where'd where you come from? You swam, swung away. And it's like, well, you're a bad assassin. You're just like, ah, okay, good. I scared him away. I'm so scary. Um, so we then cut to Superman, and he's still underwater, and he is sort of friction welding these cracks back together. So he's basically just moving the pieces, the cracked pieces together, which uh, causes enough friction for them to superheat melting and then cooling together it's it's a thing that happens in real life you can friction weld things together it's very difficult it's not easy 
but you can do it. Uh, I mean, normal people can't, but there's technology out there that can do it. Uh, and so he's 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 working as fast as he can. He can hear the bridge is is in the process of about to collapse because he's hearing these loud rumbles, uh, and he's just he's going as fast as he can, sort of you know fixing this case on. And uh, he we cut back up to the bridge itself, uh, where the rumbling from down below has messed up, or presumably messed up Batman's aim, because he throws the batarang past uh, the executrix. Uh, and Ron Page, and she's like, "Oh, you're so bad at your job, Batman. I, I'm gonna kill him, and I'm gonna do it whether or not you interfere because you're so bad at your job." And Batman says, "Well, think again. That batarang was meant instead to wind a thin silken cord around your wrist and pin it to your back." Hey, from this image, I have no idea how this batarang got in between her and Ron Page, because. They are, like, touching back to front because she's obviously holding him at, with a knife to his throat from behind him. So, but the, the image that the Batarang has is that it's, it has put an entire rope around her entire arm and, and torso, mid-torso, and I don't know how it did that. So, um, so he's got her captured, but they fall uh, backwards through the railing because of the shaking. Um, because the the bridge is, you know, in the process of collapsing. Uh, And Ron Page grabs onto uh, a piece of the railing, and the Executrix, with her one free arm, grabs onto Ron Page's coat, and Batman grabs onto Ron Page, and Executrix is like, "This this wasn't supposed to happen like this. Save me, save. And as she says, me, with a very long, drawn-out me, Ron Page's coat rips and she falls down into the the gotham river and uh, ron page says it's it's over that's the end of her and batman says fitting you can call it justice batman you shouldn't be happy that she's dead don't call it justice uh but don't worry uh because superman flies up from the river carrying the executrix and superman says you might call it justice batman but death doesn't fit my definition of the term Life's precious no matter who it belongs to. Which, like, yeah, Batman, that's your whole thing, too? You don't kill people? That's why the Joker's still alive. Um, So I don't know why you're like, oh, good, she's dead. But I didn't do it, so it's fine. Um, We then cut to a floating gold orb in space. And we see a blonde-haired woman and an unseen figure sitting in a chair. I will reveal to you that it is uh, the Monitor and uh, Lara. Yeah, Harbinger, the the woman who guns Harbinger, because the all the issues that we've been covering, they all take place before Crisis on Infinite Earths. Even though Crisis on Infinite Earths number one is already happening, it's very confusing, and I don't know why they didn't plan better for it. Like, why not just wait until you wrap up all those other storylines? I guess probably because they still want books to be coming out while Crisis on Infinite Earths is happening. It's fair. Fair. You know, sales still need to stay up while you're doing this whole big reset of... And I guess, and then that way, once we get Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12, then the issues can then start 
you know, from that point on, newer issues can start using and changing things based on crisis. It makes sense. It's just kind of confusing. Um, but that's why I'm here to explain it to you. Uh, so you're not confused. But uh, the monitor is, uh, he's saying to, to Lila, it's not Lara, it's Lila, Lila the Harbinger. Um, he says, I think we've discovered the weak link in this team. It's the Man of Steel and his real vulnerability, his compassion, his infinite capacity for mercy. And Lila says, the last time we watched them at work together, you spoke of Batman and his similar weakness. And Monitor says, so I did, so I did. You see see what I've been saying, Lila? It's little things like this one notices, subtle personality quirks within them that we can observe and use against them. Because at this point in time... Uh, before the monitor is revealed to be a good guy, he is sort of masquerading as a villain. Um, uh, he's watching the the heroes of these multiple different Earths uh, as a as a quote unquote villain. Uh, I guess as a cover for us, so we don't know who he is. Um, and he says there are people who will pay well for such observations, and we are in the best position to make them. For our vantage point is far superior to anyone else's. And Lila says, "Will there be anything else, monitor?" And Monitor says, yes, there was something else I wanted to watch. We then cut to the preset coordinates of what the Monitor wanted to watch. And we see a group of three people, I believe two women and one man, sitting around a table. And uh, one of the women says, we thought you weren't going to show. Come on a little closer so the others can get a look at you. And uh, we see a woman's silhouette uh, in the darkness. And she says, no, the light hurts my eyes. And the man says, she just don't want us to look at her face. And the other woman says, she's probably a real dog, right? And suddenly this uh, woman in the shadows flips the table uh, and uh, upends uh, all the people sitting at it. And says, you jerks want to laugh? So go watch the Honeymooners. I'm here to do business. Which I will say, the one joke that the Honeymooners, which is an old television show, has is domestic violence, which I don't personally find to be funny. Um, so don't go watch The Honeymooners. It's a bad show. And she says, now listen to me. I'm telling you, I can give you this town. Just hand it right to you. You stick with me and no one will stop you. Not Superman, not the Batman, nobody. And then we see a final little blurb of words saying, strong words. Can this mysterious woman back them up? Find out next month when Joey and Stan turn on, quote unquote, the juice. And that's the end. And that's the end of, uh, of World's Finest Comics number 314. Uh, I don't think that that one is uh, is what you would call like a good example of what World's Finest was. Because when I, when I think of World's Finest, I think of Batman and Superman working together. And while in this story they were technically working on the same case, they weren't really working together at all. And in the end, they kind of seemed like, like Superman was like, I'm ashamed of you, Batman, for being glad that this woman's dead, which, like, yes, you should be. Um, you should be ashamed of Batman for saying that, because that's not what Batman does. Um, but it's, I mean, it's world's finest. It's basically, you know, it's there to have the two heaviest hitters and the best sales uh, characters in the DC Comics uh, in one book so that you can uh, get uh, double the bang for your buck. But I would have liked it if they would have worked together more instead of just uh, working on the same case separately. So let's 
move on to Crisis on Infinite Earths number two, released February 7th, 1985, with a cover date of May 1985. And we have a couple of debuts in this second issue of this 12-part maxi-series. We have Anthro, who is uh, debuted in Showcase number 74 on March 12th, 1968, and jumped immediately into his own series. Um, not a very long-running series, but still his own series, so that's, that's something. He is the first human baby born in the Stone Age, and basically his story is of his adventures in the Stone Age as a cave boy and then eventually a caveman, and he, he gets married and he becomes the, the you know, most well-regarded member of his tribe, his cave tribe, caveman tribe. So that's him. Uh, he is right at the beginning. He's not very important to the story, uh, other than just to like a little fun little nod, fun little cameo for Anthro, um, because his series obviously ended, you know, almost 20 years before this. So um, maybe probably like closer to 15 years before this. So a lot of the people reading this at the time probably didn't know who Anthro was. So uh, and then second, we have Kamandi, uh, Kamandi, the last boy on Earth. He debuted in Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, number one. Uh, on August 29th, 1972, he is a, one of the few human beings left on a post-apocalyptic Earth inhabited by anthropomorphic animals. And we'll learn something very weird about that Earth in this, in this issue that I find is like very confusing um, and, and, and causes more questions than it sort of answers. Uh, and another little tidbit is that he was created by the great Jack Kirby of Marvel and uh, Fourth World fame. So, uh, on the production side, of course, just like the first one, written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by George Perez, inked by Dick Giordano, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Anthony Tallinn. So let's get into it. So, as usual, let's start with the cover. The cover uh, shows... Um, a handful of our heroes. We've got Earth 2 Superman, uh, Earth 1 Dawnstar, we've got Kamandi, we've got Obsidian from Earth 1, we've got, or actually no, Obsidian, sorry, it's from Earth 2. Earth 2, we've got Firebrand from the past of Earth 2, we've got, um, oh, Salivar from uh, Earth 1 from Gorilla City, we have John Stewart Green Lantern, and we have Firestorm, and they are battling a giant one of the shadows uh, that we met in the first issue, but they are doing it on this sort of gold me mechanic stru mechanical structure, uh, and they're sort of, um, it, it's, it's implied that they are sort of vertical, like the machine is vertical, and obviously from the issue we'll learn that it is a big gold tower that they're kind of standing on, uh, you know, on the edge or on the on the perpendicular side to Earth. So, like, they're hanging from ropes or holding on to metal pieces or the ones that are flying are flying. And uh, you can see in the background a the Statue of Liberty, uh, very reminiscent of the Statue of Liberty in uh, the Planet of the Apes, the original one, uh, where, you know, it's sort of, t you know, the bottom half is gone, so it's just kind of sitting with the, the arms and the upper torso with the torch pointing up, it's very, it's a, it's a good, it's a good cover. It's a good cover. Of course, you know, 
you know, George Perez and Dick Giordano, they write or they draw good stuff. So uh, let's get into the issue itself. We are, we see, we find ourselves at the dawn of man. Anthro crouches, staring over the ridge not far from the village of the bear people. He waits. They are coming closer. What's coming closer, you may ask? It's a bunch of mammoths. But uh, Anthro, being a cave boy, or actually caveman at this point, he's married and his I guess married isn't right, because the idea of marriage didn't exist in the Stone Age. Now, did it didn't exist until... When did it exist? That's a good question. Somebody who knows about marriage history should, uh, should reach out and tell me, because I have no idea. Uh, but it has to be around when... Religion? I don't know. But he is uh, dealing with this stampeding herd of mammoths. Uh, he wants to drive them. They're, they're heading straight for the village of the bear people, which I believe are his people, or maybe the bear people are the bad people, his enemies. Um, and he wants to steer the, the mammoths, which we call serpent noses, away from his village and towards the bear people's village to deal with them that way. And uh, he he's having a tough time. He's kind of he's poking that lead mammoth in the head with his spear. And it's not really doing it's not really doing what he wants him it to do, and the people in the village his his father Neon, N E dash A H N, and his wife, uh, Anthro's wife Embra, uh, are you know kind of talking about like oh you know he'll never do it no he will I believe in him you should believe in him too he's your you know he's your son and and. If he fails, then I'll die, and so will your grandchild to be, because she's visibly pregnant in this sort of stretch of story. Uh, eventually, Anthro is able to steer the mammoths away, uh, and he is—he's very excited. Everyone's excited. They're calling him a hero, and he's looking back and he's kind of raising his spear up, but he doesn't see a tree branch coming, and uh, he gets walloped right in the right in the face, and uh, he falls off the uh, serpent nose, otherwise known as a mammoth. And he kind of gets up and uh, looks out through a bush, and he sees not a, a group of mammoths, but instead a gleaming, futuristic city uh, just just sitting there, like it's always been there. He quickly runs back to his tribe, to his village, and you know he brings them to come look at it, because it's, like it's the weirdest thing he's ever seen in his entire life. And when he brings them back, it's gone. It's it's no longer there. Uh, it's just a it's just an empty plain uh, with you know some maybe some hills and some mountains in the distance and some trees uh, scattered about. But it's, there's no city there, and uh, you know they they chalk it up to him hitting his head on that branch because they all saw it. But then they all head back to the village except for one person, and he's like, "But what did happen to the to the serpent noses? Because they're not there anymore." So that's weird. Uh, on the next page, we do find out what happened to the mammoths. They were transported to the 30th century, 2985 to be specific, to the land, to the world and time of the Legion of Superheroes. And the Legion of Superheroes, a group of them, uh, it's Dream Girl, Wildfire, Coloss Colossal Boy, uh, Lightning Lass, and Chameleon Boy, they are all flying around looking for Dawnstar because Dawnstar has disappeared. Obviously, she is with the rest of the Crisis on Infinite Earths team uh, on the monitor satellite. So they're looking for her. They don't know where she's went. But they are interrupted by this stampeding 
herd of mammoths through going through, you know, downtown metropolis. So they, uh, you know, they they cut off their search short and they go to deal with them. And basically, the way they're going to deal with them is Chameleon Boy is going to turn into a mammoth, lead them towards Colossal Boy, who's just going to pick him up. He's going to turn Colossal, and he's just going to pick him up. But before he can, they disappear into thin air, and everyone's shocked. They're like, "Where, where is it? Where did they, where did it go?" And they're like, "Maybe Brainiac Five will know." And Brainiac Five has been sort of running point from from the Legion headquarters, and he says, "Forget the mammoths and Dawnstar, at least for now." We've got serious problems. My computers detect high-intensity frequency waves on the alpha-omega scale. There's antimatter energy moving toward the Earth from somewhere I still cannot determine. Enough energy to destroy not only us, but the universe. Bum, bum, bum. Antimatter. That's no joke. Uh, We then fade from the future into the present, which I guess at the present, even though this story itself comes out in February, and the cover date is only May. Inside the story, it is July 1985. So it is the future. Obviously, we know that it is the future in DC Comics universe because um, in just a few pages, we'll find out uh, some things about The Flash, and uh, obviously Dawnstar and Brainiac 5 aren't on Earth in the current uh, Legion stories. They're on a different planet, the Theocracy planet that we... Read about, I believe, last episode. Uh, but we cut to the present, and we cut to the mansion of Harold J. Standish the uh, Third, or more specifically, his heirs, because they are, because he is dead. Uh, we cut inside, and it is the Joker has uh, killed the la- final living heir of Harold J. Standish. Oh wait, no, I guess, I guess he just killed Harold J. Standish the Third. Okay. And now the mansion belongs to his heirs. Gotcha. All right. Okay. We're all on the same page now. And basically, this was a this was a plot by the Joker to get a hold of um, silent comedy films. Think of Charlie Chaplin and um, Burton. Nope. Buster Keaton. That was Burton. Buster Keaton. Those kinds of uh, uh, movies. And so he wants them because they're going to be worth a lot of money because they've just gone through a coloration process, which you don't need that. Black and white is a very cool and interesting medium for films. Uh, I love a black and white film. I really, really do. Uh, Sometimes more than color. I don't know why. It just is. Uh, And then the Joker says he always has seen himself as a movie mogul, like a movie mogul in the making. He wants to be like Louis B. Mayer or Cecil B. DeMille. Or, and then he says both the Warner Brothers, which is a incorrect fact because there's actually four Warner Brothers who started the, the Warner Brothers company. Uh, well, there's Jack, obviously, Jack Warner, the, the most well-known, but then there's also Harry, Albert, and Sam, and they were all very, very pivotal to the rise of Warner Brothers, the studio, uh, during the golden age of Hollywood. So I just want to point that out to Marv Wolfman, that there was actually four Warner Brothers, and uh, erasing two of them isn't cool. But as as he's saying this, Batman jumps in, and he has a good line. He says, only movie you'll ever make, Joker, is the sequel to The Prisoner, which I like to call The Prisoner 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um... And Joker says, oh, how'd you decipher my clue? Even I was stumped and I wrote it. And Batman, of course, being the world's greatest detective, said it wasn't that hard. Uh, The last victim's appointment book mentioned a Mr. John Alden of Plymouth Films. 
and a $25 million movie to be called Captain's Hill, which happens to be where Miles Standish was buried, and that obviously led me to his only living descendant, Harry J. Standish III. That's a lot of leaps of logic there uh, to me, but I guess Batman is smarter than me. Always has been. Uh, The Joker uses his uh, trick flower to shoot uh, some glue or paste at uh, Batman, kind of sticking him up. He can't move properly. When suddenly, out of a strange pink portal comes the Flash. Um, And and the Flash is looking haggard. His suit looks to be about two sizes too big for him. And he says, help me! Help someone, anyone, please! And Batman's thinking, the Flash, but he, he disappeared. And there is a editor's note that says, see the Flash number 350 for details. Now, if you are a, you know, listener, frequent listener of this Friday show, uh, the Crisis show, you'll know that the most recent issue of the Flash that we've covered is 344. As I've said, Crisis on Infinite Earths takes place after the current uh, material being published. So, 350 is a very, very important issue for The Flash. Uh, spoiler alert for comics that are now going on, like almost 20 years old. The Flash disappears in 350. It's the final issue of The Flash before it's rebooted um, at number one. I won't say anything else, but he disappears into the future with Iris who we find out some really silly stuff about. Uh, That's kind of dumb, uh, I will say. So uh, Batman is using this distraction of the Flash uh, to reach for some solvent in his belt. Uh, (laughs) The Joker says a line of, No fair, speedster, your town's central city. Tell him, Batman, he has no jurisdiction here. Like like any of them have jurisdiction anywhere, they're... Basically everything that superheroes do is illegal. So there's really no jurisdiction now, is there? Batman gets the solvent out of his belt, throws a battering at the Joker, knocking his gun out of his hand. And uh, while Batman is distracted talking to the Flash, the Joker escapes. But that's not important. The talking to the Flash part is important. So uh, Batman runs up to the Flash, and the Flash just says, Please, can't you see the world? It's dying all around me. Iris! Iris! And Batman is thinking, that image isn't the Joker's doing. He wouldn't know about Barry's late wife, Iris. So I guess Iris is dead. I don't think she is, though. I think they're just in the future. And Batman tries to ask Flash questions. He's like, there, where are you, Flash? I can help rescue you. And the Flash is just like, dying. The world is dying. Iris, dying, may already be dead. Save us. Save us. Save us. And uh, the Flash disintegrates before Batman's eyes. And Batman says, Dear God, what is happening? And then we go to the title of this issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And it is called Time and Time Again. And we get this really good you know, two-page spread where we see all the, the important characters to the Crisis on Infinite Earths, the team, basically. We've got Psycho Pirate. We've got Firebrand. We've got Simon with a P at the beginning. We've got Blue Beetle. We've got Solovar. We've got Geoforce. 
We've got Firestorm and the new Killer Frost who's in love with him. We've got Superman from Earth 2. We've got Arian, Lord of Atlantis. We've got Dr. Polaris. We've got Obsidian of the Infinitors. We've got Cyborg of the Teen Titans. We've got Dawnstar of the Legion of Superheroes. And we've got Green Lantern, John Stewart of the Green Lantern Corps. It's a stacked lineup, uh, I'm not going to lie. And basically, the team, we're meeting the team right after the last issue, where they kind of fended off those shadows, and it was revealed who had brought them all here, and it is the Monitor. Uh, And Dr. Polaris reveals something that readers of, I think, basically most of the uh, titles coming out before or during this time... Uh, know the Monitor as a bad guy, like we saw in World's Finest, uh, number 314, which we just covered. The Monitor has been masquerading as a buyer and seller of weapons and and information to the villain underworld. Uh, And basically, this was his way of sort of puppeteering, making sure that certain villains failed uh, or were hindered, uh, because Simon, with a P, who's a villain, he tried to buy weapons from the monitor, but the monitor said no. And the monitor says that he turned him down because Simon's scheme would have endangered the very ones that the monitor needed. Uh, so the, the team is kind of conflicted over whether or not they should trust the monitor because they all know him as a villain. Firestorm knows him as a villain. Dr. Polaris, Simon, they all know him as villains. But they're, they're kind of conversing amongst themselves about whether or not they should trust him. And... Uh, Lila uh, turns into Harbinger because Monitor needs her to, and she basically says, "You all, you gotta, you know, you gotta stop it. You gotta believe. You gotta trust the Monitor. I've trusted him with my life. He's raised me from a baby. He he knows what he's doing." Uh, and so they all agree tentatively to trust the Monitor, and the way they're going to sort of verify whether or not he's telling the truth is he is sending them off on, um, I, I believe, like, uh, I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven teams, or s- sort of seven teams. Uh, I don't know if there's that many. Uh, let's see, how many was it? It's how many, how many little thingies does he have? Five. So there's five crucial arrows throughout time and places that the monitor has put his devices. Uh, powerful enough to stop the antimatter tide. So there's going to be five teams of these heroes and villains uh, going out to protect these basically large towers, tuning forks, if you will, uh, universal trans-dimensional tuning forks, basically, uh, to protect them from the villain of our story, who I don't know if we've met yet. I can't remember. It's been several months since I read the first issue. Uh, so they, he sends off these five teams, and uh, we see the, the the harbinger going to the monitor's side, sort of, you know, telling him to rest now, conserve his strength. With while her min- inner monologue is conflicted because one of her, uh, when she divided herself, if you remember, one of them was captured and sort of embedded with this like dark energy. So uh, she's now been infected with this dark energy, and she is being forced to do the bidding of some mysterious entity. We then cut to Oa. We see the Guardians of the Universe. They are just finding out about a, um, a powerful energy source coming to destroy the galaxies and possibly all dimensions. So they are going to call the entire Green Lantern Corps together 
to fight it, but they are stopped by a mysterious, unseen voice uh, saying, No, Guardians, it is too late. You shall no more summon your soldiers than prove, than prove a threat to my plans. What began with you so many centuries ago ends with you now. And we see this big noise. It goes, Skra! It's S-K-R-A-A-A-A-A-A. Uh, Skra! Uh, and there's a blast of energy, and we see all of the Guardians of the Universe laying on the ground in sort of disheveled poses. We then cut back to Metropolis, Earth-1. We see Superman of Earth-1 flying through the space and time. Nope, flying through just the regular air, not space and time. He is going to meet Batman on top of the Daily Planet uh, because the Batman uh, said he needed his help, and it was urgent, and it was on an emergency. And Batman then tells Superman about his run-in with the Flash. After telling Superman the story, Pariah shows up. If you remember who Pariah is, he is this man in, a, I think, a very well-designed, very cool green and yellow costume and black costume uh, with a nice big green cape. Uh, he has been, he is pulled across time and space uh, and dimensions to, like, be, uh, to witness uh, destruction of these worlds for a crime that he committed in his past that we don't really know about. Yet, I believe we will learn about it in one of the issues of this series. And basically, Pariah says that, you know, your Earth is dying, as so many other Earths have, because I'm here. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But mid-sort of explanation to Batman and Superman, he is pulled away to another Earth to watch it die. Uh, So Batman says, oh, he said the Earth was dying. That's what Flash said. What's going on here? Batman, that's what you got to figure out. Uh, We then cut to... Wherever Kamandi, the, the last boy of, on Earth, lives. And now it says, It is sometime in some future, in a timeline that at times stands between modern Earth and a 30th century which knows nothing of its existence. So, that is confusing. Because, uh, well it's not, I mean it, it is a way, because at times Kamandi is in a universe all his own but then at other times he meets people like batman and we see references to superman in uh Kamandi, the last boy on earth there's a group of um i believe gorillas that worship uh superman's costume as sort of an idol uh, and and Kamandi has met batman in brave and the bold in previous issues so at times he is in a uh, universe all his own and at times he is in the dc mainline universe which is the confusing part because if he is between the present and the future where the legion of superheroes is that means that all of society and a giant percentage of humanity has been wiped out uh, but it recuperates enough to have super high-tech technology Uh, and communications with space and aliens and numerous different alien races living on Earth some point after the time that Kamandi lives. It's very confusing. Uh, I I think Kamandi should be way, 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 way in the future. Like, like, you know, in the the time machine, H.G. Wells, Wells, the time machine, where he goes to like 10,000 A.D.? I think it should be something like that. Like, so far in the future that... The Earth is, you know, un, unrecognizable, which would cause the Statue of Liberty to not be able to be there because I doubt that the Statue of Liberty will 
still be around in, in let's see, it's 2024, 10,000, around 8,000 years. I just don't think it'll be around. Maybe. Maybe the French are that good, but uh, I doubt it. So, sorry. Sorry for that little tangent. It just was confusing when I read it, uh, and I wanted you guys to also be confused. You're welcome. So, we are uh, in the time of Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, and he is climbing this large gold high-tech-looking tower, uh, which I will post a picture of it uh, to to the Instagram uh, so you guys can see it so you can imagine what it looks like. It it also will look recognizable from the cover, which I, of course, will also publish. Uh, And Kamandi is confused by this tower because he 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 just came by this area, like, recently. And this wasn't here, but now it's suddenly here. So he's climbing it. He has attached a line somehow really high up. And he's climbing it. And he is just confused about it. But he's exploring because, like, what else are you going to do? He's not, he doesn't have TV. He doesn't have Twitter or TikTok to, or Roblox to whatever the kids are doing these days to, to sort of buy, you know, waste his time away. So he's going to go explore this weird gold tower. When suddenly one of the shadows that we've met previously uh, cuts his vine by kind of popping out of this tower, and he starts to fall, and he's like, oh, he's going to die. He's, his, his short life of, I, I don't know, how he's a boy. He's called a boy, so I'm going to say maybe 15. His 15 years flash before his eyes, but Superman of Earth 2 grabs onto him and says, you're safe in my hands. And Kamadi says, Superman, see, Superman exists in this timeline. Uh, and... Uh, this Superman is, of course, confused because he's never met this boy. But this young boy has met the actual Superman, I think. Uh, so they, you know, he, he grabs onto Kamani, holds onto him, brings him to the tower so he can grab onto something. Uh, and he meets Solovar. So this team is Superman, Dawnstar, and Solovar. Uh, a pretty good team, I think. Uh, we've got, you know, we've got strength. Uh, and powers from Superman. We've got massive intelligence from Solovar. And we've got a lot of utility with Dawnstar with her tracking abilities. And flight. She can fly. Uh, so that's a pretty good team, uh, if I do say so. Uh, he has this... Uh, Kamandi and Solovar have this moment where Kamandi thinks that Solovar is one of Zar Simeon's hired killers. Because, uh, as I said, this planet... Earth has anthropomorphic animals, so they have like human intelligence and stuff, and they hunt human beings. But uh, Solovar says, "No, no, happily, I am no such thing. I'm not even from your time period." And uh, Kamandi mentions that his eyes are different from the other animals, warmer, more trusting, more human-like. Uh, when suddenly the group is attacked by another group of these shadows, so it was just the one, and now it's a whole group. So they fight him off, you know, uh, Kamandi gets burned on his shoulder by one, but they, they comment that these shadows are weaker than the ones that they fought on the monitor satellite, so that's weird. Uh, and they quickly dispatch them. They sort of flee. These shadows flee away from the tower, and Dawnstar wants to go after them, but Solovar mentions that their duty is to protect this tower, not to, not to leave it alone. So... Um, they, they stay there, and they watch their tower. Uh, but in the distance, we see one of Harbinger's personas, one of her split-off uh, versions of herself, uh, watching 
them and say, let them protect the machine. It will serve those fools no good. Their efforts will be re rewarded with death. Because obviously, like I said, she's infected by a dark energy. We cut back to the monitor satellite. Harbinger is going to check on the baby. You remember the baby from Earth from from Earth Three, the the baby of uh, Alex and Lois L Luther. So Lois Lane and Lex Luther of Earth Three. Uh, their little baby Alexander. I guess it would be Alexander Luther Jr., wouldn't it? Uh, but she's shocked by something when she walks in there, and the reason she is shocked is because it's not a baby anymore. It's like a um maybe four maybe five five years old so it has aged it he he has aged rapidly um in the few hours since he's been here since all of this has started so that's weird we then cut to atlantis uh of arian's time so forty thousand years in the past uh they are looking upon it, and one of the gold towers that we've seen is right smack dab in the middle of it. Uh, and it wasn't there before. Arian would know that. Uh, and this team is Arian, uh, Obsidian, and Psychopirate. Psychopirate is sensing how many people are in Atlantis and how many emotions they have because he is a little, a little sicko and he loves emotions and loves eating them. Nom, 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 nom. Says, oh, what a delicious morsel of emotion. Obsidian threatens Psycho Pirate that if he does anything with the emotions of these people, he's going to make him regret it. And uh, Psycho Pirate's like, oh, I would never spread my madness here. And then to himself, he's like, at least not for you to know, you stupid oaf. Which is like, rude. But the Psycho Pirate is a deranged criminal. So, uh, it, that's on brand. We see Arian sort of, they walk into Atlantis proper and they are greeted by his lover and partner, Lord uh, Lord, Lady Chian, uh, and so that's you know we 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 sort of met her when we summarized Aryan Lord of Atlantis uh, a couple episodes ago, maybe last episode, uh, and Aryan kind of explains a little bit about stuff, but not a lot because he doesn't want to reveal anything. I don't know why. I'm assuming not to make people panic, but uh, suddenly Obsidian taps him on the shoulder and says, "I can't find Psycho Pirate anywhere. Have you seen him?" And uh, Arian says, well, no. We cut to Psycho Pirate sitting, just sitting on a rock, you know, minding his own business, kind of being a weirdo. He's like, they won't let me feed on the emotions. It's no longer enough to change emotions. No, I got it. I got to feed on them. I got to take them from other people. When suddenly from behind him, he senses terror, the sweet manipula manipulable, manipulable, is that a word? M-A-N-I-P-U-L-A-B-L-E. Manipulable. Manipulate manipulable. It just doesn't, doesn't really sound right. Um, fear. And he turns around, and who is there but Pariah, who is constantly afraid all the time because of all the death he has to see. And um, Psycho Pirate is like, oh, are you, what are you worried about, friend? Uh, you're in Atlantis, and Pariah's like, oh, Atlantis, Earth-1, 40,000 years before my last appearance, because he was just on Earth-1, if you remember, with Batman and Superman. And uh, Psycho Pirate's like, no sadness or worry around me, friend, not when I need your feelings more than you do. So laugh, lighten up. And uh, so Psycho Pirate, with his powers, 
makes a face of laughing, smiling, and causes Pariah to, like, fall on the ground with laughter. <laughs> He's busting a gut so bad. Uh, when suddenly Sacro Pirate is blasted from behind by some sort of energy, and we see Lord Arian behind him uh, with a smoking fist, having just blasted him with magic. Sacro Pirate gets mad and forces everybody around him to experience terror, uh, probably the terror he just took from Pariah. And uh, Arian tries to protect himself with magic, but he's unable to. Uh, when Obsidian, thinking fast, realizes that the only reason he can he's being affected is because he can see Psycho Pirate's face. So he envelops Lord Arian in his shadow form uh, so that he cannot see Psycho Pirate anymore. And on the outside of said shadow form, Lady Chian and the other Atlanteans are going to attack Psycho Pirate when suddenly a beam comes from the sky and blasts Psycho Pirate and transports him away. So that's not good because that means that somebody just took Psycho Pirate. And we find Psycho Pirate in this completely black space. And he's being talked to by a voice saying, Psycho Pirate, I need you. And Psycho Pirate, at first being who he is, he's like, well, I don't need you, and I don't even want you. Just show me your face, and I'll teach you the meaning of fear. And this voice says, a fool, you would want a face without one of your own? And we then suddenly see Psycho Pirate's face, and it's not there. It's just blank, very much like the question. It's, uh, you know, um, I, I, I have no mouth, but I must scream sort of situation. And... Uh, this voice says, you know, do do what I want, and I'll give you your face back. And Psycho Pirate says, yes, yes, of course, because he gives him his face back so he can answer. And uh, he's like, without a way to express my emotions through his face, I guess, they would destroy him. So it, he doesn't ever want that to happen again. We then cut to the Monitor's satellite, where Harbinger has just given him the news that they lost Psycho Pirate. He's been taken uh, and she's like, surely his powers aren't crucial. And uh, Monitor's like, whoa, dear Lila, we needed him more than either Obsidian or Arian. The menace we deal with is one of emotion. And uh, Harbinger says, well, then what about the uh, the empath called Raven? You know, Raven from the Teen Titans. And Monitor says, I can find no trace of her. If she is on this earth, everything about her has been changed. Which sort of tracks because we haven't seen Raven in either of the Teen Titans that we've covered uh, since the beginning of the show. So maybe we'll find out. I think she's just, like, healing her wounds or recuperating from, like, a big battle with Trigon. I don't know. But she's, she's, not, she's not on Earth, I guess. At this point in time. This is obviously in the future. And uh, the monitor says, No, I fear we will have to forego this all avenue and investigate another. Lila, my dear, get me the file on the new Dr. Light. It is time for me to create her. And uh, this is actually really cool because Dr. Light, uh, if you've read anything like Identity, not Identity, yeah, Identity Crisis or just Justice League stuff, Dr. Light is a villain that manipulates light and is a, is kind of an idiot, uh, but also is a, uh, because of Identity Crisis, a sexual predator. So uh, this is the new Dr. Light who is a lady and is a good guy. It's pretty cool. Uh, we then come back to Atlantis, where basically Pariah 
explains that this world is going to be destroyed by antimatter when suddenly one of the Atlanteans points up and we see the, 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 the all-white sort of force uh, kind of waiting above Atlantis and it's coming and a pariah says, in a matter of hours, your Earth will die. And Arian and Obsidian are confused by this because the monitor said that if they, you know, if they protected these towers, that they would, his machines would activate and protect the Earth. And Obsidian says, then the monitor lied. He lied. And we see a tear roll out of Pariah's eye because he has to witness the destruction. We then cut back to the monitor's satellite where uh, Harbinger is sort of walking around and giving updates to the monitor that the antimatter force has reached Earth-1, or the outskirts of Earth-1, and we see the monitor uh, standing at a console with, like, a headset on. He must be creating the new Dr. Light. Uh, Harbinger, or one of her split-off personas, is then called to a mysterious black room, or dark room, like, completely devoid of light except for a window or a screen looking out on the antimatter force encroaching on Earth. Uh, and we, we learn that this is the bad guy. We don't know who he is yet. I mean, some of you probably know if you know anything about this series, uh, or really the DC universe, but I won't say who it is. Uh, and he, this guy's basically telling Harbinger, like, there's no point in the monitor doing anything because he's doomed. Uh, as always, he proves the incompetent fool for not accepting the inevitable. When I am done, all his universes shall be destroyed, while mine shall rule supreme. All your universes are belong to us. Uh, then we have this sort of speech that I'm going to read verbatim from the last page of this issue. Universe, this is the bad guy still. Universe after universe has fallen before my power. World after world is absorbed into one. Now, how many worlds do I now control? How many lives are now mine? We then cut to, not cut to, we then shift over to the voice of the monitor, either talking to himself or thinking. He says, Lila, I raised you. Lila is Harbinger, obviously. I raised you from childhood, yet even then I knew how it all would end. You were a child lost from the start, but I instilled within you hope. Find that hope, Lila. Call on it soon, for the darkest times are only hours away. Resist his temptations, Lila, through you, through the child from Earth-3, through the man who calls himself Pariah, only through all of you and all my champions can the universes that still live survive. And that is the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths 2. Things are getting tense and, uh, like, very, very... The stakes are high. The stakes are very high. The stakes just smoked a huge blunt... And they are so high right now. So uh, that's exciting. It's, it's always great to get back to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Uh, so now I guess we'll just get there in, uh, uh, I guess, what, uh, 10 more episodes? So episode 20, we'll get to Crisis on Infinite Earths 3. And that really doesn't bode well for how long it's going to take us to just cover a year in, uh, in 1985. Because if it took us 10 to get... Or I guess took us like nine and a partial to get through all of them from one month. That means it's going to take us almost a month for each one. I mean, that's an entire year to cover a year. No, no, no. That's 120 episodes. It's way more than than a year. That's two? More than two? That doesn't bode well. Especially because I'm pretty sure new comics 
come out. Uh, let me just look real quick. Uh, let's see, Crisis on Infinite Earths number two. Yes, uh, next week we have Dead Man number one, and then the week after that we have Shadow War of Hawkman number one. So new new series are coming out, but uh, hopefully hopefully not a bunch more. And if I'm looking ahead into the future, I think maybe not. I think those are the only two new ones starting. So that's good. <laughs> that's really good. Because um, I don't need new I don't need new ones throwing off the timeline, but. I guess those two will, but I mean, Dead Man's cool, and, and Hawkman, you gotta love Hawkman, he's so confusing and weird. Um, but that's, sorry, that's Crisis on Infinite Earth number two, ignore all that sort of talk about how long it's going to take us to cover just 1985. Um, so let's move on to the final issue uh, of this episode. This is going to be a long one, folks. Uh, it's uh, DC Comics Presents number 81 released February 7th, 1985, with a cover date of May 1985. And we have a couple debuts in this one. Uh, as I said at the top, this is going to be Ambush Bug and Superman taking on Cobra with a K. And so we have Ambush Bug and Cobra debuting. Ambush Bug debuted in DC Comics Presents, same one, number 52 on September 2nd, 1982. He was originally a villain but became a hero uh, a little bit under a year later in DC Comics Presents number 59, so about seven months later, uh, April 7th, 1983. And uh, Ambush Bug is a very silly character. Uh, I remember him, I know him mostly from uh, during the New 52, there's those little like, like DC TV, like 52, like Channel 52, where him and Calendar Man and uh, another lady uh, kind of give news about what's going on in the New 52 universe. Uh, that's where I know him mostly from. Uh, but we also have Cobra, who debuted in Cobra Number 1, November 13th, 1975, which is very interesting. I don't really think of villains as getting to debut in their own title. Like We have titles like Harley Quinn and Deathstroke and... Sometimes the Joker gets one, which you really shouldn't, uh, for reasons of story and like what's what are what's up with these stories. But they de- very rarely do they debut in their own series. They typically debut in a hero's title as a villain. So it's it's interesting. I think it's a twelve. It might be like a twelve issue series, thirteen maybe. Uh, it's not very long lived, but I guess a year, but. Still, uh, so he's a villain, snake-themed villain. Uh, but on the production side, we have uh, plotted and penciled by Keith Giffen, the great Keith Giffen, scripted by Robert Lauren Fleming, inked by Robert Oxner, lettered by Bill Pearson, and colored by Anthony Tallinn. So let's get into it. So the cover of DC Comics Presents number 81 has Superman being just beaten up mercilessly by Cobra, who is an uh, orange snake costume-wearing guy with a green wrap around his body, like a toga sort of situation. And lots of stuff is on fire, and we see Ambush Bug running in from the background, saying, your ordeal with Cobra is over, Soupy. I'll pull your fat out of the fire. So Superman's gonna, or Ambush Bug is gonna save the day is going to save Superman's life from Cobra. Just kidding. That's not what happens at all. Uh, so we start this 
issue out on a golf course. Uh, it's, it's this ambush bug is basically Deadpool before Deadpool existed, and he's not super edgy though. Uh, Deadpool. Okay, yeah, of course it brings up the film. Bring up, bring me the character of Deadpool. Uh, Deadpool was created in February of 1991 or December of 1990. So this is about five years. I mean, Ambush Bug itself, 1983, so seven years before Deadpool. Uh, so he breaks fourth wall. He is constantly making jokes. Um, so we see a, a guy, a golfer, get hit by a golf ball, and someone off screen says Ford, which is not what you say. You say four. F-O-R-E, I believe, if you are uh, hit your golf ball towards uh, someone. And we see DC Comics presents Superman and Ambush Bug. And it says, who are you expecting? Lee Trevino, which, let's see, who is Lee Trevino? Lee Trevino is an American professional golfer. That's a very good, okay. So he's not, he's not Lee Trevino. He is Ambush Bug. And then we see Ambush Bug driving Lee Trevino's golf cart. He's wearing the classic golfer's uh, outfit, plaid pants, uh, sweater, a plaid t- tartan hat, I guess is what it'd be called. And he says, darling, this is just too, too fun. No matter, no wonder all these rich tight wads like this game. I've been playing all afternoon and it hasn't cost me a cent. And it's so relaxing. Those guys at the pro shop should try it. They were all so uptight yelling and waving their fists in the air. Weird. Then we see this. the title of this issue is All This and Cobra 2, or Turning Kryptonese. I think I'm turning Kryptonese. I really think so. Or Torah, Torah, Torah. It's a lot of titles. Some might say too many titles. Uh, we see Ambush Bug, and he is uh, playing, uh, continuing to play golf, and he says, I don't know why golfers always say, yell forward when they hit the ball. Uh, I'll bet any make would do. And we see the next time he hits his ball, he says Mercedes-Benz, and it hits off a tree, and it, and it splashes down into the water hazard. And he then says something about having taken a night course in CPR, and he's got on a snorkel and um, eye goggles. And so he goes underwater, and he's, like, talking the steps. Uh, he's talking through the steps of CPR, and then he lifts up his club and hits the ball from underwater. That's not typically what you do. You typically take a stroke and you move it back behind the water hazard. I, that's right. I grew up playing golf. Uh, I don't like it. It's a game I'm not good at. Uh, and he says Subaru this time when he hits it. Uh, and he, he gets it in the hole, which is, I think, something that no one else has done, hitting a ball from inside a water hazard into the hole. So that's cool. He's very excited. He got 100 on the very first game, and he's going to do even better on his second hole. So he got 100 strokes on the first hole, which I don't think is physically even possible, unless you're hitting in the exact opposite direction. So he reaches for his ball in the hole, and uh, it's not a Space Jam situation, but he does pull out a red rock instead of his... Uh, golf ball. He says it's not even signed by Arnold Palmer, who is a famous golfer, one of the best of all time. And uh, he's, you know, he's he's like, hmm, what is this? Some sort of weird glowing gem. And then he has an idea. So he he transports himself back into the pro shop because that's Ambush Bug's power. He can basically teleport anywhere. Uh, he transports himself back, teleports himself back into the pro shop, and one of the golf pros is calling 
the police. He said he's broken 17 windows, injured 22 of our members, and now he's stolen Mr. Trevino's golf cart. And he's surrounded by a couple other people, and all of them have bandages on their head because they've been hit in the head by golf balls from Ambushbug. And Ambushbug appears and asks where he can find a jewelry store. And uh, then off screen, Ambushbug gets beat up by all of these uh, country club members, and he runs out. And and then we see a guy uh, who's smoking a cigarette, and but in reality, the cigarette's a camera. And he's asking his boss, Cobra, if it's working. And uh, Cobra says, yeah, of course it's working, you imbecile. But it'd be better if you had turned it the right way, so I'm not looking straight up your nose. Uh, we then cut to the jewelry store that Ambushbug went to. Uh, and he has he gives the gem to the jeweler. And he says, oh, it's for a friend. We had a falling out recently. And uh, there's an editor's note that says, Superman got mad at Ambushbug in action number 565, which is one before we started this show. Uh, in the Ambushbug backup, uh, it, it's titled Sellout, uh, featuring Ambushbug of Earth-1. So, uh, and the cover has Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman all staring uh, mean or angrily at Ambushbug. So Ambushbug clearly did something involving selling out uh, with Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Uh, and the jeweler, you know, shines up the stone and puts it in this nice necklace. This nice necklace. So it's a nice big red stone in a gold necklace. And uh, Ambushbug then teleports himself to the Fortress of Solitude where uh, Superman is playing what he calls Bombardment Ball, which is where he tries to get a ball in a hole before it's hit by two missiles, which is like, cool. <laughs> cool Superman. I guess you're Superman. And he's wearing a lead blindfold so that he can he can only use his other senses when suddenly he yells out, I can't see! And then we cut to Ambushbug and he's standing there and he's like, great Krypton, how do I get out here? And who's doing all that screaming? And we see Superman running around holding his eyes saying, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind. And Ambush is like, wow, it's me. And he holds up the necklace. And he's like, how did I end up here holding this necklace made of red kryptonite? And we see an editor's note that says, red kryptonite has bizarre effects on Superman, which may last for 48 hours. And so Superman's like, what? Red kryptonite? So he's, he's realizing that he's been, he thinks it's a joke. But um, he realizes that he's been transported into the body of Ambushbug and vice versa. Uh, so he yells at Ambushbug. It's like, why would you bring me red kryptonite? And Superman and Ambushbug is like, well, it was a gift. Do you like it? And Superman's like, sure, I did. I just, I love it. Thank you. Thank you very so much. Sarcasm, obviously. And he kind of gets mad at Ambushbug. It's like, what if someone needs me? What if there's a crisis <laughs> in the next 48 hours? Uh, what if Superman's needed? And uh, Amish Book is like, you're right. Superman is this living symbol, eternal truths, the the very concept of justice and the belief in the American way. And so he's like, well, then I have to start pulling my weight. And so I'll do it. So he's going to do Superman stuff. Uh, so he says, up, up, and away. And he flies through the ceiling of the Fortress of Solitude, leaving Ambush Bug, sorry, Superman, in the Fortress of Solitude, where the two robots, like the robot guards of the Fortress of Solitude, think he's an intruder and put him in jail. We then see Ambush Bug traveling underground because he can't really fly very well. So he's kind of burrowing underground like some sort of groundhog towards uh, Metropolis or Gotham. He's not really sure. It's kind of like in those uh, Looney Tunes cartoons where 
uh, Bugs Bunny kind of pops up and finds out where he is, and then he kind of then he makes his decision where he's going to go, and then he goes that direction underground. Uh, so then we cut to 44 hours later. So there's only four hours left of the red kryptonite effect. So clearly nothing bad has happened in that time. That's good. We see Cobra, and he is kind of walking around being a real weirdo. He's not wearing his Cobra costume. He's still wearing his Cobra gloves, though. So he just looks like a bald guy, which, again, making bald guys the villain is mean. But give him hair. Like, there's way more people with hair than there are bald people. So, like, it's the the uh, the, the odds that someone who is bald is a villain is much lower than the DC Comics universe would make you think. Huh. <sighs> So he's kind of talking, thinking to himself, it's like, uh, yes, uh, my power, I, uh, his plan isn't really very straightforward. He's just, he just knows that he's going to get power, and he's going to find the ambush bug. I guess he must want the red kryptonite? I don't know. I don't know why he's going after ambush bug. But he goes to ambush bug's office, because uh, I guess he has one, and he opens the door, and he's like, <laughs> uh, he says, insect, your hour is at hand, for it is I, Ko, and he's cut off, and then he says, Ko with a question mark at the end. And we see Superman's body with Ambush Bug inside it saying, you're gonna have to take a seat, Coco. I'll be there in, I'll be with you in a minute. And he's having a, he's having a conversation on the phone. And he's surrounded by Superman merch. Like there's a Superman mug, there's a Fortress of Solitude paperweight. There's a Superman action figure, a Superman like stuffed doll, a Superman poster behind him. And he says, no, I wasn't. And he's, and he's talking on the phone to uh, Levitz, who I'm a, believe is Paul Levitz. I should have done this. Yeah, former president of DC Comics, Paul Levitz, is who he's, well, current president at that time, but he's talking to Paul Levitz on the phone, and he says, I wasn't talking to you, Levitz. What contract? Look, I don't care what soupy, I mean, I signed. You DC types are trading on my image, and from now on, I want to cut. Same to you, pal. And uh, so obviously Cobra is shocked that Superman is sitting inside of Ambush Bug's office. And Superman turns to him and says, I've got him on the run, Coco. I'm going to press for the great Frank Miller deal. And Ambush Bug says, what? No, no, I don't care how many members there are in the Legion of Superheroes. And at this point in time, Cobra's like, i got to get out of here. This is the Kryptonian. He's a heavy hitter, and I am but a man, Cobra. So i got to get out of here. And we, see, we hear Ambush Bug saying, come on, Levitz, quit stalling. I didn't call just to hear, what? No, no, don't list him. Levitz, I matter eater, lad. And uh, Cobra e- Cobra is running away. He's like to his henchmen. He's like, "Red alert! Red alert! Red alert!" Uh, and so, um, Cobra escapes, and we continue to hear Ambush Bug say, "Wait a minute! I thought Bouncing Boy lost his powers. Who? They did? He was? No kidding! In space? I can't believe it! And they got married? But who takes care of the kid? Her? But what about her husband? Uh, you know." He's as confused about the Legion of Superheroes as I am. And he's part of the DC Universe. Uh, and he says, hey, Coco, you're not going to believe this one. Remember that little blob guy named Proti? And uh, so he's, he's, the guy's gone. And Ambushbug's like, hmm, he left in a hurry. And that bald head, where have I seen it before? He said his name was Coco. Initials KK. And KK comes right before LL. And Ambushbug's like, LL? And he, he, he jumps through the ceiling of his office building and says, Not so fast, Luther. This looks like a job for... And then, of course, he doesn't know how to fly properly, so he falls back in to the, to the building. And then he gets on... He just runs after Cobra. And uh, 
He catches up with him, obviously, because he's Superman, but he doesn't know how to stop. So he just continues running, and he starts running, uh, like, around the world. And he's like, stop the world, I want to get off, which, like, fair, ambush bug. We've all been there. We've all been there. We then cut back to the Fortress of Solitude, where ambush bug, with Superman's mind in his body, is in Fortress of Solitude jail. And he's like, hey, robots, I think I'm going to be sick. And one of them says, click, that is an old trick. And uh, Superman says, fire. And one of them says, click, horse feathers. And Superman says, you two better let me out here, out of here right now, or, and they say, click, or what? And he says, or, or, or I'll be sorry. And uh, Superman tries to figure out how Ambush Bug can, uh, can teleport, but he just can't figure it out. And he's like, it's no use. I can't do it. It's, it's not fair. I'm stuck here while that, that cretin is running amok. And at this point in time, Ambushbug is running past the Fortress of Solitude. And he says, I heard that. Uh, we then cut back to Cobra, and he is on Coney Island. He says, Coney, or he thinks, Coney Island, the perfect place to make a stand. And then we see a, uh, an editor's note from the editor, Julie Schwartz, who says, uh, that's just what Nathan said. Ha, ha, ha. Get it? Stand? Hot dog stand? Ha, 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 ha. Uh, so Nathan's hot dog stand. Coney Island is where, the you know, every year there's the nation, Nathan's hot dog eating contest. And uh, Cobra thinks, first I'll kill the Kryptonian. Then I'll deal with that pun drunk editor. So breaking the fourth wall. Uh, so he's going to summon his Cobra arc, which is his flying invisible ship. Um, before the Kryptonian gets back, but Superman uh, runs past, and he's like, oh, no, he's here. Oh, wait, he was here. And then he's like, oh, he's really moving quickly. He must be running around the world, when suddenly Superman does circle the world, or Ambush Bug circles the world, and collides with Cobra. And Cobra gets up, and he's like, oh, here he comes again. I'm going to be ready this time. And he's going to shoot with his wrist torch, but his henchman did a bad job of loading it so it doesn't happen right away. But then it does. It goes, skablam, 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 skablam. And uh, he thinks that he's disintegrated Superman. But in reality, Superman just fell or, like, went up into the air and then has fallen back down uh, through the boardwalk of Coney Island. Um, and, and Ambush Bug says, thanks for stopping me. I was getting wicked jet lag, which that's not how that works. And Cobra says, my name's not Bud. I'm Cobra. As you well know, Kryptonian, first you will die. And Ambush says, says, me? And then Cobra says, then I will defeat your fellow heroes, take over your nation, imprison its citizens, destroy their TV sets, burn their homes. And Ambush Bug says, destroy TV sets? You animal. And then his, his uh, laser eyes, his heat vision goes off, and he sets fire to all of Coney Island. And uh, Cobra's like, the Kryptonian's gone mad. He's destroyed this entire waterfront with an idle glance. I gotta get out of here. Uh, and uh, Ambush Bug kind of gets himself, like jumps up through the boardwalk again. His cape gets caught and he's pulled back under. Um, and <laughs> Cobra then makes his escape back to his, or attempts to make his escape back to uh, his arc. And he says, come in arc, come in arc. This is Cobra. You have to get me out of here. Superman is buggy. And uh, Ambush Bug says, gasp, he knows my secret identity. It's like, no, no, he doesn't. And uh, the arc appears, and uh, Cobra is going to jump up into it. But behind him, 
ambush bug is digging through the ground, and we see this dun 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 dun, and there's an editor note that says to the tune of the Jaws theme, which is why I did it that way. And Cobra jumps up to jump into his arc, but Superman ambush bug, sorry, grabs his leg and is pulling him down. Uh, when we cut back to Superman in the prison watching television. And he's got this wicked headache. He can't stop watching this garbage television. When he's like, I gotta, I can figure this out. I can finish, figure out how to teleport. And he's just like, he strains. He strains. He goes, mm, mm. <coughs> Sorry. That made me, that made me cough. That's hard on the body. Um, and he just can't figure it out. And he's like, what does he do? Say Simon says when suddenly, pop, he teleports to the, uh, somewhere in the ocean. And he's like, blubbing, flubbing, dubbing, glubbing, like they do on Looney Tunes. We cut back to Ambush Bug with Cobra. And Cobra's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and Co- Ambush Bug's like, is that all you have to say for yourself? You're sorry. Well, all right, I'll let you go this time. But if I find out that you're not really sorry... Are you aware that I could crush your skull like an eggshell? And Cobra's like, uh, please don't crack my skull like an eggshell. And uh, Superman says, pardon me? And uh, we see Superman. He says, a great krypton. The effects of the red kryptonite have worn off. I'm myself again. And Cobra's like, oh, sure. Sure you are. Well, I was just saying to my men that Superman is really himself, isn't he? And they uh, quickly beam him up before uh, Superman turns vicious again. And Superman turns around and sees the entire waterfront of Coney Island ablaze. And he has to decide whether he's going to go after Cobra or uh, deal with the fire. He's going to deal with the fire because he's Superman. We then cut to Ambush Bug, who is in the middle of... Not the middle of the ocean. He's, he's just off the coast of Coney Island, it appears. Uh, he's back in his body. And he's like, fire? But I think that's Soupy's weakness. Or is it wood? No, I think his weakness is the color yellow. Poor Soupy, with all those weaknesses, he's going to need help. Which... For reference, fire is Martian Manhunter's weakness, wood is original Green Lantern Alan Scott's weakness, and the color yellow is, at one point in time, I don't know if it is at this point in time, uh, the weakness of Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, and Jon Stewart, and Guy Gardner, and all those all those guys. Um, so he teleports away to go back to Coney Island to save Superman from all these weaknesses. When Superman uh, dives into the ocean, he's going to cause a big wave to, to splash the fire. And we see this commentation from, uh, I don't know if it's from Ambush Bug or if it's just from some unknown source that says, I guess it's from Wedge Fairway, coming to you from poolside. The Man of Steel looks very good going into his dive. His form is excellent and his style is distinctive. And we see in the next panel, there's a, a row of scores and there's Keith, Rob, Bob, Tony, Bill, and Julie, which are... Keith Giffen, Robert Lauren Fleming, Robert Oxner, Bill Pearson, Anthony Tallinn, and Julie Schwartz. And uh, it says, and he's done it. His total score for the dive, averaging the judges' marks and dropping the lowest score, is a record 9.8, beating the high score set by the Plutonian. Uh, and we then see Ambush Bug, and he is now a hardened World War II soldier. And he's going to fight that fire, because it's a... Because, <laughs> uh, you know... He's going to kick its flame and tail because that's my job. And I don't like it, but somebody has to do it, so it might as well be me. I've seen horror. I'm battle-hardened. I'm a tough-talking, Nazi-stalking, war-hawking. And behind him is a giant wave, and he turns around and he says, Mommy. 
And then we see a splash, we see the word splash, and it's S-P-L-A-A-S-A-S-H, exclamation point. And this is where it has the credits of the, the comic. It says, Superman and Ambush Bug was proudly plotted by Keith Giffen, lovingly penciled by Keith Giffen, adoringly dialogued by Robert Lauren Fleming, admiral, admiringly inked by, Rob, by Bob Oxner, sentimentally colored by Anthony Tallinn, sweetly lettered by Bill Pearson, and hardly edited by Julie Shorts. And then Ambushbug cuts in and says, just a cotton pick in minute, which is a terrible phrase you shouldn't really use. There's only one A in splash. Uh, and it says, so what's your big problem? The credits are always on the splash page. Get it? Uh, Superman then flies down and is like, oh, I, I didn't see, you know, Ambush Bug standing there. I hope I'm, uh, uh, until it was too late, if there's anything that's happened to him, I don't know. And then Ambush Bug pa is like dangling from a piece of wood. And he's like, uh, oh, big man, Mr. Take Charge. Other people have powers, you know. It wouldn't hurt you to share a little of the glory, Mr. Limelight. You could show a bit of vulnerability, a chink in the armor, one itty-bitty human imperfection. But no, that would make you common like the rest of us. I'm so sorry we humans can't live up to your high standards. Go ahead and laugh, but I'll tell you one thing. Nobody likes a wise guy. So at this point in time, Superman is cracking up. And so Ambushbug teleports away. Uh, with the final saying, alien. Um, uh, and, and Superman's laughing. He's like, he forgot his pants. And he's laughing. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, we then cut to the final panel, which is uh, Cobra in his uh, Cobra arc flying away. He says, the Kryptonian got me so confused. I, Cobra, have been chattering like a pompous. And then he says, A-S-S. And then he says, lackeys, plot a course out of the DC universe. And that's the end of a very silly issue of DC Comics Presents with Superman and Ambush Bug. And that's also going to do it for a not super silly episode of Issue by Issue Crisis. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. It's nice to be back in the saddle. It, you can really, I really feel it when I take time off for whatever reason that getting back in the saddle feels really, really good. But as usual, check us out on the socials. Uh, they're all in the show notes, Instagram, Twitter, Threads. I do my best to be on top of those. Uh, you know, go out, rate and review, tell your friends, tell your enemies. Uh, it helps the show. All that, all that podcast jazz. But I've ha- I've kept you long enough, uh, and uh, so I will see you on Monday for issue by issue Golden Age. Uh, until then, I am your host, Nick Byers. See you around.